You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Kate Anderson Brower. Now, if you've heard her name more than once, it's because she came on the podcast a couple of years ago with our friend and her friend, Pete Seat. Remember that for all your, for your White House books and first ladies? Yeah. Kate is the author of number one bestsellers, The Residents and First Women. She is a CNN contributor and covered the Obama administration for Bloomberg News. She is a former CBS News staffer and Fox News producer. She has written for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and the Washington Post. She's come back on the Leaders and Legends podcast most graciously to discuss her new book, Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. Thank you, Kate, so much. Thank you, Robert, for having me again. It's nice to see you. Well, I grew up, I was born in 67. My mother was born in 38. So it was an Elizabeth Taylor household. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't put your book down. It's not, as I said, before we got started, it's not usually the thing I would pick up, but the one question I want to start with, and maybe this is an unfair question, but you know, her probably as well as her kids do now, if you could come back reincarnated and live the exact same life that Elizabeth Taylor lived, Kate, would you do it? A hundred percent. Yes. Despite Not everything, despite, despite eight marriages and multiple health issues, that jewelry and that sort of, you just couldn't. <laughs> How can you resist that? I think she had a magnificent life and I think she enjoyed all her life. I mean, it's a joyful 
existence, but also uh, their layers of loneliness and, you know, substance abuse and never really finding that one true love. But I think she just, she lived her life so passionately and um, yeah. And who wouldn't want to live on a yacht for several years before being (laughs) have a place in Switzerland and then have a place in all over. This is a bit of a departure for you, I think, and just in terms of the subject matter, most Mm -hmm. of your histories have been, I don't know if they're politically based, but certainly in that area. How did this book come to be? It it came about kind of in a strange circuitous kind of way. I I started talking to my husband, actually, um, as I was wrapping up my book, Team of Five, and trying to figure out a topic that would be interesting, but not too political. Uh, I'm always interested in writing about women. I'm interested in writing about one person and really diving in, doing a deep dive into their life. And so my husband said, you know, he went to UVA and he loved John Warner. And he said, (laughs) why don't you try to talk to John Warner about her life? Like he's a Virginia Republican Mm -hmm. senator. He was retired at that point and um, he was her sixth husband. And so I reached out to Senator Warner, got to know him, interviewed him several times at his house, which is like 20 minutes from my house. And he put me in touch with Elizabeth's kids, with her son, Chris. She had four kids and um, Chris put me in touch with the trustees of her state. I flew out to L.A., met with them, and they said, you know, we're looking for someone to write a book about her life, actually. And really? so it just worked out perfectly. Um, and they are lovely people. I would say the only thing, I mean, there are three trustees. It's her lawyer, her longtime assistant, and then her grandson. And they're just wonderful people, but they're very... Um, to different degrees, it took them a time to 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 really want somebody to write a warts and all biography because they, they knew that part was coming. They knew that part was coming. Yeah, I mean, and it's Elizabeth Taylor. So even she talked about going to the Betty Ford Center and, you know, you've got Michael Jackson, you've got all these divorces and breakups and everything. You can't overlook the tragedy in her life. I had the pleasure of interviewing this fella named Christopher Anderson. (laughs) And we've not posted that podcast yet, but we will. And Christopher Anderson is Kate's father, who's written a number of books. And we were talking for just a second before we hit record about his role and what he does and his encouragement in pushing you and supporting you for your literary career. And I just have to ask you about it because he was such an incredibly delightful man, conversationalist interview. It was a, it was a complete joy to interviewing. Oh, well, I mean, he really enjoyed talking to you and um, he's a great, you know, supporter of, um, of mine and of any, anybody who wants to get into journalism. I mean, I, I was telling you earlier before we started recording that I, I don't know if I would have been brave enough to try this profession if it weren't for him, because it is tricky. I mean, there's some years where you're not uh, doing as well. You know, anyone who's self-employed knows this. It's a roller coaster ride. Some books sell better than others. Some deals fall through and you just have to keep moving forward and kind of so he taught me a lot about that perseverance and 
um, not getting too excited about anything great or too down about anything not working out. And then just having him home was so nice. So I hope I do that for, for my kids too. <laughs> he wrote a book. Mr. Anderson wrote a book on King Charles III that we discussed in a podcast interview. And he's going over there for the coronation. Uh-huh. And I begged him if he needed an assistant, take me. I'll get oh. coffee. I was a private in the army. I'll get coffee. I'll sweep up. I'll vacuum <laughs> dust, whatever. I, I'm if I'm first in line for that spot. So <laughs> yeah, it'll be awesome. The other first, one of the other first questions I thought of before we get into the book's contents per se, and that is, and it's, it's kind of a joke question, but it's kind of like, I really wonder how did you choose which photograph to put on the cover and which photographs to include in your book. There are several amazing photographs, but if, if you Google Elizabeth Taylor photos, you can just get lost. Mm-hmm. There are so many incredibly beautiful pictures of her. And when I saw the picture you put on the, on the cover, which is a very pretty picture, but it's an understated picture. I'm guessing there was a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that seemed to be one. To me, like that would be one of the hardest aspects of writing a book on Elizabeth Taylor is choosing which pictures to use. Yeah, I mean, the photos inside the book are I I really because she's so famous, tried to choose photos people hadn't seen before. So there are photos from this archive that her family had. So a lot of them haven't been seen before. There's a great photo of her cooking in the kitchen with her, you know, <laughs> hair up. She looks not like the Elizabeth Taylor you imagine. Um, and then the cover photo was actually presented to us by Harper Collins. They have, you know, a graphics design and art department and all of that. Um, and this uh, really creative, talented woman, Robin Villardello there came up with it. And I love it because um, it looks like she's about to speak to me. It looks like she's just about to say something. And the photo was taken in the early 60s. And Eddie Fisher is actually standing next to her. So we cut him out because she was uh, he was her least favorite husband. She called him Edna for the rest of her life. Um <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that later on, because I have a note here that says Eddie Fisher to me. What's what's my note? Eddie Fisher is truly the only villain in the book. Yeah, he was unless I'm missing one. No, he's a bad guy. I mean, um, yeah, because even, you know, Michael Jackson and the sort of the more controversial stories in the book, there's sort of nuance to that. You know, it's that, you know, he felt. She she never believed the allegations against Michael Jackson, and they were both bonded as child stars, and so it's more complicated. With Eddie Fisher, she just thought he was using her, and then he was abusive. I mean, at one point, he held a gun to her head. Um, so he was so upset about her affair with Richard Burton and just wanted, felt like he owned her. And when she almost died of double pneumonia, she left him because she realized, you know, she had to live her life to the fullest after that. But I I think that, yeah, he's the only villain. We should note here for our Leaders and Legends podcast audience that Eddie Fisher left his wife, Debbie Reynolds, to marry Elizabeth Taylor after her husband, Michael Todd, was killed in a plane crash. And this is the late, late 50s. Yeah, so Eddie, Eddie being a little jealous about Richard Burton is somewhat juicy. <laughs> you really need, at the beginning of the book, I put um, 
a whole you know list of husbands, lists of children, time periods. So Eddie Fisher, she was married to from 59 to 64. Richard Burton, 64 to 74, 75 to 76. I mean, her her love life was one man after another after another. And I think she just sought solace in these relationships. And I mean, she I think she also wanted somebody to help her with the business of being Elizabeth Taylor, you know, like someone to support her and to be there for her. She never found it. My parents were married and divorced from each other twice. And we used to call them Liz and Dick. <laughs> wow. You don't hear that every day. Even though their names were Anna and Jack or John, we used to to make fun of them and say, listen, Dick, you getting married again? Did they stay together the second time? Hell no. They lasted about as long as Liz and Dick did yeah. the second time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I read online that you had access to more than 10,000 photographs. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, they had a tremendous amount of photos and letters and connections. I mean, I interviewed more, more than 250 people for this book. Um, because of the trustees. I mean, this is the first book that I did I've ever done with um, a family and with cooperation. So it's tricky, right? Because you want to tell a true story and and like I said, a words and all unvarnished look at her, but you also have to kind of tread lightly. Like, you know, I, I was talking to and working with Mike Todd's grandson, who, you know, strongly feels that Mike Todd was one of the great loves of her life, right? Certainly, and, yeah. you know, then you have Richard Burton's um, adopted daughter who feels that he was the love of her life. So it's, it's a very, I think, complicated thing when you're dealing with so many um, different relationships. And you do a good job of splitting that baby in the book. You know, it seems like she vacillates. Oh, I, I'd still be married to Mike Todd. But then, you know, she's, as it comes through in your book on Elizabeth Taylor, she's like secretly wanting to marry Burton a third time. Yes, I think they would have gotten married a third time. And it was a really hard conversation I had with Sally Burton, who was Richard's final wife, who still holds such animus towards Elizabeth because, you know, She's she wouldn't let Elizabeth come to the funeral to Richard's funeral. Mm -hmm. She felt like Richard's family always thought that Elizabeth was the great love of his life and not her. And at a certain point, I think it's you can see her perspective. She is his final wife. And she felt as though Elizabeth had this hold on him like she owned him. Um, but still, you know, I thought decades later, she would have kind of moved past <laughs> some of that. But the resentment is still very fresh there between Sally Burton and I, I guess the ghost of Elizabeth Taylor. One of the other things that came through your book so strongly was Elizabeth sent, I call her Elizabeth, like we're BFF. So forgive me. Oh. Elizabeth's sense of charity and mm -hmm. giving back. Uh, I'll ask you about the AIDS work here towards the end of the interview. But before then, she was a very giving, loving, caring, empathetic, generous person. Yeah, I mean, she adopted Maria. She had four kids and she felt strongly uh, three she gave birth to and she really wanted to adopt. And she went to uh, a uh, orphanage. She, she met a bunch of children and... At one point, she was introduced to Maria, who was a baby at the time, and 
she fell in love with her. And one of the people working at the orphanage said, you know, no, 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 you don't, you don't want this baby. She's got a problem with her hip. She's going to need surgeries. And Elizabeth said, no, that's absolutely the child I want. You know, I want, she was, she gravitated towards people who were in trouble. And, you know, Montgomery Clift, I think there's a beautiful story about how she protected him after this tragic car accident where he was known, this beautiful actor, this gay man who she really fell in love with. And I think if he had been straight, she would have married him. (laughs) I mean, and he was just, so handsome and he gets into a car accident that disfigures his face and she um he the accident was after he had a dinner at her house and she runs up to him her her white silk dress is you know stained with his blood she's trying to get he's choking on his own teeth Mm -hmm. and she's reaching in and pulling them out and then she shields him with her body when the paparazzi comes and says if you ever, you know, if I see any photo of this in the press, you're never getting another picture of me ever again. And I think that's really beautiful because she's threatening them and knowing that it would be so devastating to Monty, who she called him Monty, if, if photos of his face after this awful accident were released. And so she stood up for people in big and small ways throughout her life. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Kate Anderson Brower, number one New York Times bestselling author. We are discussing her new book, Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. Let's start perhaps at the beginning for a little bit quickly. She's born in England. Her parents are relatively prominent. I mean, they're not royalty, but they're prominent. They moved to the United States in, I think, 38 or 39 because the war clouds over Europe. Matter of fact, I think even, isn't it, Joseph Kennedy tells Elizabeth's dad, get out. Like, now's the time to move. Mm -hmm. Her mom was a Christian scientist. Elizabeth was brought up that way and eventually converted to Judaism, which I'll ask you about later. They moved to the United States, settled in Hollywood or Los Angeles. And the rest is, quote, unquote, history. How did she get started in films? And what were those early, early years like? Because they seem to have shaped her rebellious nature, even as she got older. Well, she got into films because of her mother. And her mother was uh, a moderately, moderately successful actress, stage actress named Sarah Southern. And her mother was a social climber and, you know, the, uh, you know, tip, very typical stage mother. And she, Elizabeth had a brother who was very attractive too. And her mother tried to get him into movies. And the day of his audition, he shaved his head so that, uh, he wouldn't get it. <laughs> he hated it. He hated the idea. And Elizabeth loved that about her brother, that he just wasn't interested in it. Um, Elizabeth's father, Francis, was he related to a successful art dealer. And so he had he, he got into the art business. And so he did very well. Elizabeth was raised upper middle class to upper class, you know, but her parents uh, disagreed about what to do in terms of getting her into show business. And Sarah went out. Out. She was very unwilled. And, you know, that led to a, a separation for a period of time between Elizabeth's parents because of this feeling that Francis had that he 
had to make it a minute if he wanted to see his daughter. You know? <laughs> he, he is a bit player in your book that comes out. I mean, he like parachutes in and then he's gone. Yeah. I mean, I think that she, so, so in the book, I, I write for the first time about his uh, being physically abusive to Elizabeth. And that had never been reported before that he, he felt as her career progressed. And so she was 12 in National Velvet and she became a household name and she's making so much more money than her dad. And he got really angry at her and would hit her violently. And she said she had lockjaw the rest of her life, she would say, because of her father beating her. Um, and so he he felt not to justify what he did, but I think he felt very deeply frustrated. But she got into the business strangely because of him. It was the it was her mother, Sarah, who was the, the driving force. But Francis, her father, was an air warden, which is just strange to me. But I guess going <laughs> yeah. back to World War II and Beverly Hills. So he would be patrolling the neighborhood and he had a friend who worked at one of the big studios and he got an audition for Elizabeth. And I go into the book about how it all came to be. And eventually she um, she gets a deal with um uh, MGM, which is after she has one, she has a deal that kind of goes nowhere uh, for a period of time. And then she gets to MGM and in, at MGM is where her career really flourishes. And she becomes, you know, she, this commodity really made by the studio. Back then, the studio system controlled your entire life, who you could date. She went to school at, on the studio in a little little schoolhouse. Um, I interviewed Margaret O'Brien, who's one of the last stars of that era. And she described Elizabeth bringing her chipmunks to the schoolhouse <laughs> and how lonely it was for her. I mean, there were a dozen kids at a time in this going to the school, very strict teacher. And Elizabeth talks about, you know, here you are. She was the only kid in her grade, uh, no peers. And then she would be treated like a child by the teacher. And then she would go have a romantic scene for a movie and have to make out with, you know, Robert Taylor. And it just did mind, mind tri tricks on her mind. I think it was very difficult for her. But she rebelled quickly, even as I would say, not a young child, but perhaps a teenager against this oppressive Hollywood studio system. She did. And she confronted L.B. Mayer I and mean, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, this feared mogul who controlled the biggest you know, studio at the time. And she went into his office. And he was yelling at her mom. And he's uh, she said, you know, you can't talk to my mom like that. How dare you? Storms out of the room. And everyone says, Elizabeth, you have to go in and apologize to him. You know, she was 16 at the time. And she said, no, they'll never fire me. So I, I, I'm not going to. I'm right. And he's wrong. And she never saw She never went into his office again after that. She never apologized to him. And she never was fired because she made them so much money. And she says that's when she learned this very cynical lesson that that's all she really was to them was a moneymaker. You know, they didn't care. They gave her a bunch of crummy roles that she didn't want, but she had to do. Um, she was this commodity made out of tinsel and cellophane, she she used to say, and that's how they treated stars back then. National Velvet came out, I think, is it 47, 49? I have my late, list. Late 40s, I know. <laughs> yes. Um, it came out actually in 44. 44, that early. Mm -hmm. So then she has several years after that to grow up. She starts to get bigger, 
movie roles or more adult movie roles is perhaps the best way to say it. But she does something quickly, almost as soon as she can, to help assert her independence. And what was that ill-fated decision, marriage to Nikki Hilton? Yeah, I mean, I would say her first big role uh, between there's a bunch of she she jokes, you know, the studio handed me a bunch of crap, basically. And she <laughs> did do some bad films. She definitely did. But, the, you know, sprinkled in there is a Little Women and Father of the Bride. Um, but her first first big, big film was George Stevens in 51 with A Place in the Sun. And George Stevens and she, this famous director, had a, had a really fascinating relationship. She didn't like him much, but he gave her a lot of opportunities, including in Giant. But she married Nikki Hilton, and George Stevens later would say that she married Hilton and, and had all these successive marriages because it was the only way women of that era in the 50s could have any freedom. Strange, which is a strange thing to say, but a woman like Elizabeth, who, uh, you know, was so conflicted, she was not, you know, she was still a teenager when they got Um, I think she saw becoming someone's wife as a means of escape from this, this life that she had. So she was, you know, Mrs. Nikki Hilton, Mrs. Michael Wilding. And she would try to kind of, transform herself into what that person wanted and then she would see that she never really could escape from this life it seems like she went from prison to jail yeah do you agree with george stevens who won two oscars for best directing i mean he was a titan during the mid 20th centuries that elizabeth was seeking these things she clearly wanted to control more of her own money that comes through more of her own life and she thinks that jumping from one institution which is childhood basically to another marriage would give her that freedom is it fair to say she miscalculated or she just chose the wrong guy to marry the first go around yeah i think she chose the wrong guy the the first go around and but you know she made up for that when she married Mike Todd and, and you know, she, Michael Wilding after N Nikki Hilton was physically very violent, huge alcoholic. Um, she tells a story about how he, they got into a fight and she was pregnant and he kicked her and she lost the baby. I mean, the whole relationship was just a nightmare from the word go. And her parents loved the idea of her marrying into the Hilton family because it's part of their social climbing. Right. But she, she stands up for herself. They were married for less than a year. And she says she wasn't going to take it, even though her parents really didn't uh, support her leaving that relationship back there in 1950, you know, 51, you're getting a divorce. That's a big deal. Um, and, and then I found this memoir that her mother had written that was never published where she says, her Elizabeth's mother says, you know, we were told that Nikki had problems and at one point he needed to be put into a straight jacket and that he would kill her. And it's the, I, I'm reading that and you just think, well, why would you ever then want her to marry this guy? Like they were told that before they got married. So it's kind of uh, social climbing at its worst. He amounted to basically nothing. Yeah. He, he ended up dying, um, I'm not sure if it was suicide or what, what it was, but he was in his, I think, 30s or 40s. I mean, really young when he passed away. 
He, she then marries Michael. We could do, of course, do a podcast on each one of these marriages yeah. or a podcast only about her marriages. But she marries the reason I mentioned Michael Wilding, who was British, is that he had she had two kids by him, mm-hmm. two boys, two boys, yeah, two boys. And they were very, and that's my segue into asking you how helpful they were to you writing your book because you quote them at length several times in your biography. And I thought it was fascinating that they would be so open with you. That's, I mean, really, it's a compliment to you. Thank you. I mean, Chris, Chris is one of the reasons why I ended up doing this book. He is um, very much, very uh, thoughtful and um, he's a great writer. And we would talk on the phone and he would say, let me think about that. And then he would send me an email that was just amazing, you know, uh, with exactly these kind of tormented thoughts. I think at times, like everyone has about their parents, I think you have difficult times. And if a parent is that famous, it was fascinating to get into his head a little bit writing about her because he would you know, he talked about, to me, the hardest thing is talking about her addiction. And he was so upfront about it. He described her sitting on the edge of a bed of a bed when he was in his early 20s. And she was married to John Warner and they're living in Georgetown. And she said, can you come up to the bedroom? He comes up to the bedroom and she's sitting there with a syringe of Demerol and she wants him to plunge it into her thigh. And he says, mom, I'm just not going to do that. And um, she did it herself in front of him. And to watch your mom inject herself with these painkillers that were really, I mean, they didn't kill her in the end, but there were many times when she said she could have died and ended up like Marilyn Monroe. But yet I still think there were so many dark days in her life, but the joy outweighs the darkness and the end. That's why I say I wouldn't mind coming back. (laughs) It's not all, it's not all depressing. Her third husband is Michael Todd. She clearly was head over heels for him. He dies in a plane crash is, am I good? And I don't have the chronology in front of me. Is it, is it later in the fifties, 57 or 57, they get married in 57 and he dies in 58. So they're married for about 13 months and they have a daughter together. And, you know, when I saw your book the first time at the Barnes and Noble, I picked it up. Of course, I looked right to the pictures because we, you know, I'm, I'm sure I don't have to explain that, but then I looked at the mic. I wanted to read about the Michael Todd death and how she not only how she reacted but how the people for whom she worked reacted to her because i would have to guess that one day receiving that news more than anything else was the single worst day of her life and i think like jackie kennedy who i've written about before i think she had ptsd the rest of her life because reading this re- this 24 hour you know, sequence of events where she's supposed to go with Mike, who is this, for people who don't know, this super producer, very famous, I did around the world in 80 days, larger than life personality. And she truly adored him. Um, There's a great interview that Edward R. Murrow does with them where, you know, you could just see how just the magnetism between them. But um, she finds out that he died in this plane crash. She was supposed to be on the plane with him, And, you know, she's left alone with three kids. She's, I believe, 26. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how old was she? 
Yeah. Yeah. And um, she's in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at the time, trying to figure out, you know, she she needs the money because she has this huge lifestyle too. I mean, she needed the money because she needed to finance the assistance and, and the private schools for the kids and this whole life. She She needed the money because she needed to spend it. Yeah. I mean, she was Elizabeth Taylor. She was, you know. <laughs> um, and she sold the di- the diamond ring that uh, Mike Todd gave her that she used to call her skating ring. So she did make sacrifices, um, but but just the like the trauma of that. And Shirley MacLaine talked about you know coming and seeing Elizabeth at their house and how you know the news just shook her that she just could not function as anyone would feel for a period of time. And on the set of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, there was a touching moment where Burl Ives, who played Big Daddy, you know, they had all this fake food on the um, table for a scene. But Elizabeth hadn't eaten anything for days. This is a few weeks after Mike Todd's death. And so the director said, you know, we're going to put out real food this time and everyone eat. And Elizabeth just ravenously was eating (laughs) because they were worried about her. They thought she was, you know, she went through periods, I think, of being suicidal. And she said if it weren't for her kids, she didn't want to be around anymore. Is there a better on-screen, more attractive pairing ever in Hollywood (laughs) history than Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? No, those eyes. I mean, both of them just just incredible. And you don't get. uh, Yeah. And it's interesting that Paul Newman's memoir is out like almost at the same time, too. And he writes in that memoir about visiting Elizabeth and talking to her after Mike's death. And I love it because it was something where he said, you know, I said, this is God's plan or God's will. And she said, oh, go to hell, you know, (laughs) and that was her. She was just like brash and not phony. And that's what drew me to her. You mentioned a movie a few minutes ago that that I have to do in in honor of my Hoosier dumb go back. And that is Giant, which co-starred Fairmont, Indiana's own James Dean. Uh, that that movie, I remember watching it. I mean, it's like 63 days long. It's so long. But I remember watching it as a kid with my mother. And my mother going on and on, because we didn't know, <laughs> she didn't know, that Rock Hudson was gay. <laughs> and I can remember her just like fawning over him. But Hollywood knew it. Elizabeth knew it. Um, what was the relationship like both between Elizabeth and Rock and Elizabeth and James Dean, who died, I think, before the movie was even done? Because I think I did I read correctly that she still had to do reaction shots based on what James Dean was saying in the movie after he was killed or after he died in the car crash, which was so painful for her because she loved James Dean and. Um, she was just completely crushed. They, there was kind of a, a love triangle between the three of them. They had, they were in Marfa, Texas, this tiny town. And um, they each James Dean, Rock Hudson and Elizabeth stayed in these little bungalow houses and they would go after they were done shooting and hang out with each other. But Rock and made these um, martinis that Elizabeth talked about a lot and, uh, uh, she loved to like re. I think 
reimagine those days. And when Rock was dying of AIDS later on in like in the eighties, she would often talk about just the love, the the joy that she had with these two men who didn't like each other. I mean, Rock was very jealous of James Dean, which you know. And then when James Dean dies, he's like he was beating himself up because he didn't want him to die. Like he, but he, he was not, I think he felt like he was being upstaged. Yeah, and, that's right. And I think he might've been in some cases because James Dean, I mean. Well, he was just like a rocket's red glare there in the, in the fifties. Yeah. And, and she, 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 her, her attitude and her feelings and behavior with regard to rock when reading that in your book, rock hudson that's what cemented to me the sense that she's got so much love to give and it's a shame she can't find it in her marriages because then she goes to look for it in other places not falsely but because that's just her nature yeah i mean she joked that sometimes you don't fry the fish you want to fry i think that she i don't think that rock hudson was someone she would have married but they did have a lot of fun together but i think montgomery cliff definitely they would have gotten married if he, and, you know, I think they had some, some sexual tension between them, but he was gay and she knew it. And um, so I think for her, like you said, it it does feel like she constantly is trying to find that one person. And I think it was Richard. Yeah. but then I think so. But then the alcohol, it was Chris Wilding, Elizabeth's son. You were we were talking about how helpful he was on this book, and he said it so well. He said, "You know, I asked him if they knew that his mom was an alcoholic, and he said it's hard to pay attention to a barbecue when there's like a dumpster fire right behind <laughs> it. You know, this house was engulfed in flames." And no one was looking at mom because Richard was so, you know, he would go to a bar and if there were, if there was a glass half full on the bar, he would drink a stranger's glass. I mean, he just was just, he was drunk a lot and he could turn really mean. And I think that's what kind of undid their. And there were a lot of British actors in that time period who did their thing. Uh, You can listen to Peter O'Toole talk about it. Uh, Richard Harris talking about it, you know, all of them about how they just drank their way through the sixties and seventies. You are listening to the leaders and legends podcast presented by veteran strategies and Indiana based public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central Indiana, Garmon construction leaders and legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest is Kate Anderson Brower, author of a terrific biography, Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. Uh, you mentioned sexual tension between Elizabeth and some of her, uh, I would say, gay male friends or or co-stars she had more than sexual tension with frank sinatra yes she had um she actually you know was in a romantic relationship with him and she did get pregnant and he you know strongly encouraged her to have an abortion and she went to mexico and had this abortion and then you know was obviously 
it was very emotional and grueling for her. And I don't think she was ever able to kind of look at him the same way again. Um, but uh, there wasn't really an option for her. I don't think back then to have the, she was married, correct at the time yeah. that when she's married to Michael. Yeah, Wilding? that's right. That's her Michael Wilding marriage. And the Michael Wilding marriage is very sad because he was Elizabeth kind of wanted a husband who could, uh, go toe to toe with her. And so there are a lot of relationships that were physically abusive and Michael Wilding wouldn't do it, you know, and mm -hmm. she would want, she would hit him and want him to hit her back like Mike Todd did. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and Richard Burton and, uh, she, she was bored by a gentleman. She just wasn't interested in it. And that's, that is one of her undoings. I think is that always like picking fights and the, the same thing with John Warner years later, like this was never going to work out because he wasn't giving her that emotional gratification. And just like everything to her was, you know, passion on stage had to be brought off stage kind of thing. Um, was there a particular husband? I think I, if I remember this correctly in your book, and I can't remember which husband it is where she, she proclaims the uh, exalts the joy of makeup sex. Oh yeah, I mean that's Richard Burton, but it's probably all of them too. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> she, she and Richard. I mean, there was stuff in these letters between them where you know it's very passionate, it's very um, raunchy. You know, it's it's. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's very visceral and very real. This kind of like just this this sense that they couldn't live with each other and couldn't live without each other. And I think it was just true, true love. But they couldn't get over the addiction side of both of their lives because when he stopped drinking, she was like, "You're kind of boring." <laughs> you say that you say that in one of you say in your book you call it like when Richard is one of his dry periods, and she's like, "I don't." won't even be around you and yeah. you just think that that's so counterintuitive it's like i don't even know you like this you know and <laughs> i think that for some people that's probably true they were in this codependent ad addictive relationship and she would give him little bits of gin because he was going through withdrawal and shaking and nauseous and everything and it's like, if you really want someone to quit drinking, it's hard to understand how you then give them alcohol. But for her, it was this compassion she had for him and maybe a twisted little bit. <laughs> she didn't give up drinking. I want to bring up three movies real quick. Uh, we talked about a little bit about National Velvet and then A Place in the Sun. Affirmed that Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor are the most beautiful couple yeah. ever to appear together on screen. Butterfield eight. She wins her first Oscar. She received five Oscar nominations and she won twice. The first one for Butterfield eight and Elizabeth Taylor in that white slip <laughs> with the drink in her hand is one of the most iconic photos of the period. Uh, according to you, she didn't necessarily want to do the movie. I think it was her last movie that she, she had to do for MGM or something. So she just kind of did mm -hmm. it. Was that movie a surprise for her and both how she was, celebrated and found new respect among her peers. I mean, like all beautiful women, you have to fight extra hard to go like, okay, I get that you're looking at me, but watch me work. And yeah. do you think that really put her on a different level? I think that the reason she got the 
was because of the tracheotomy. You know, she had just had double pneumonia. The world had turned against her because she had uh, broken up supposedly the marriage between Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, who was the golden couple at the time. Um, and, you know, Shirley MacLaine even said at the time, I lost to a tracheotomy. So Elizabeth didn't think she deserved it. <laughs> Butterfield 8, for anyone who's seen it, it's really not a great film. Her, her She plays basically a prostitute. She thought it was the, the studio punishing her. It's... um. It's kind of silly and over the top. She didn't think she deserved it. I mean, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is a much better performance and a fantastic movie. And then you get this. I mean, she hated the film. And she said there is no deodorant like sex because once she won that Oscar and once she was suddenly revered, whereas the, you know, Hollywood press loved her and because she almost died. I mean, I think that that's why people turned towards her instead of away from her. Cause there were times when no one would take her phone calls, you know, when she was really considered poisonous after she broke up Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, even though she didn't really break up their marriage, it was already over. Um, yeah, she was, she wasn't the Angelina Jolie of the time. I mean, some people, people were just on team Debbie or team Elizabeth or Liz. She hated being called Liz, but people, they picketed outside her shows or movies or or Eddie yeah. Fisher's Las Vegas residencies. I mean, that's what struck me the most was how much she had to deal with the sexism of the time and the idea that this this sort of um, tawdry, slutty woman is going and stealing people's husbands. And it was always again and again the story of her life, you know, and then when, when she's with Richard Burton, the same thing happened to the point where a member of Congress wanted to make sure she couldn't come back into the country. I mean, it was ridiculous. The pe what people <laughs> were saying about her and, uh, you know, so she, but she was never apologetic about it. She said, you should love who you love. And um, I, I like that about her. She wasn't trying to get people's approval. Um, Richard Burton's daughter, Kate Burton, is one of my favorite actresses. I'd love to interview her on the podcast. She's absolutely terrific. She's great. She's great. And she's wonderful talking about Elizabeth. You know, I saw that in your book. I was just that was my next question is it wasn't just Elizabeth's kids you talked to. You know, Kate Burton is not Richard Burton's, excuse me, is not Elizabeth Taylor's daughter. But still, she was willing to talk to you and and doesn't come off. And what I read is bitter or anything. It's almost matter of fact. It's amazing, actually, that she could be so forgiving. Um, I think it's partially because Elizabeth, because um, Richard's wife, Sybil, Kate's mom, uh, remarried and had like a whole life afterwards, you know, and opened a nightclub in New York. And, you know, it wasn't like this brought down her mother's entire existence. And she tells a really funny story about how one night, you know, Elizabeth wanted to cook everyone dinner and the fire broke out in the kitchen. And I, Kate just said, you know, Elizabeth Taylor is not the not put on earth to cook you dinner. That's not her purpose. So I think that like she thought it was fun. And I think Elizabeth worked hard to kind of nurture that relationship with Kate because Liza Todd was the same age as Kate Burton. So that could be very difficult, I think. Next movie I want to mention is the first Elizabeth Taylor movie I ever saw. And as a 10 to 12 year old boy, 
it was memorable for a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. And that was Cleopatra. Ah, okay. I, I thought you were going to say who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I was like, eh, ten year old. Uh, she looks she looks a lot better in uh, Cleopatra <laughs> than yeah. she does in Who's Afraid. I was born in 67. So when that movie kind of came on TV, again, my mother was a huge fan. We watched it. I just remember one of the things I remember is it's Archie Bunker is the first one to stab Rex Harris. <laughs> it's the movie where Julius Caesar is assassinated on the Ides. The yeah. first person to draw his dagger is Carol O'Connor. Wow, I I didn't I've seen the movie, but I didn't I didn't know that. That's so. And I I recognized him as a kid, going, "It's Archie Bunker. He's going <laughs> to kill that dude." Anyway, that movie was a host unto itself. To use Thomas Jefferson's description of Alexander Hamilton, it was a mess. It was controversial. It was ridiculously expensive. Elizabeth Taylor becomes the first male or female star to garner, to get a $1 million salary. Plus, she got a percentage of the profits, I believe. Uh, But that's the movie where she meets Richard Burton. They had met before, but now he is her co-star. And it changed Hollywood forever. And I don't think that's an overstatement. Do you? No, I mean, the, this is the first major celebrity couple. This is the invention, the couple who invented the paparazzi, really, Richard and Elizabeth, the first celebrity couple with their own nickname. Listen, um, now we're so used to celebrity, but at that point, there were a few golden ones, and she was one of the golden ones. Um, and yeah, I mean, Cleopatra is not one of her finest films, but it is incredible that she was able to get a million dollars for it and she was going to walk away if she didn't get a million and the first actor male or female to get that much money that was groundbreaking and it was also kind of like a a message of I know my value I mean we talk about that a lot now with women and she always knew what she was worth and what she was bringing to the table and she would have walked away she loved the idea of playing Cleopatra and it had been presented to her for years and years but she hated the script. You know, they they had to bring in Mankiewicz to redo the script. And the whole thing was a complete mess. And um, she wasn't happy with how it turned out, you know, but. It's an epic to say the least, but describe for the Leaders and Legends audience how Liz and Dick became Liz and Dick. Well, I think she was, you know, gravitated towards Richard Burton, because she thought, oh, God, I have to play against this guy who's a famous stage actor and he's going to be such a jerk. And I've heard he sleeps with all of his leading ladies. And then on the first day of shooting, he's terribly hungover and (laughs) he's just a mess. And he's his hands are shaking so badly that he can't bring a cup of coffee up to his lips. And she has to go in there and hold the coffee up for him. And they break it, you know, they both hysterically are laughing and it's this instant connection. So this man who she assumed would be a terrible snob is actually self-deprecating, great sense of humor, whip smart, just like she is. So sexy to her. I mean, just everything about his that, that voice, that voice. I mean, the whole I sent you that video of, of him get playing tribute to Frank Sinatra and you just are like, that voice is absolutely perfect. It's amazing. And he is just, I mean, she she liked a self-made man. You know, he was from Wales. His father was a coal miner. He was one of several kids. They had very little money. 
his father was an alcoholic. Um, this is not somebody who was born into this life. This was not Nikki Hilton. This is a kind of a rare talent who worked his way up in London theater. And um, so to Elizabeth, it was kind of like Mike Todd, who was actually, you know, Jewish and Elizabeth's parents were anti-Semitic. So it was, she kind of was rubbing their nose in it and she loved <laughs> doing that. And <laughs> I love that about her, that she liked these guys who, who were self-made. And Mr. Eddie Fisher, her husband at the time, was not blind to what was happening. No, and this is the time in Rome when he held a gun to her head and said, you're too beautiful to kill. Don't worry. I won't I won't shoot you. And so that's pretty traumatic. Um, and she felt that she had to really escape from this life with Eddie. And she she did it with Richard. And I think he Richard, I write about, too, felt very conflicted about leaving his wife and his two daughters, Kate Burton, and then she has a sister who had some some health problems. So that was just compounding this guilt. He had a conscience. They felt bad about what they were doing to people's families, but they just couldn't, you know, keep their hands off each other. It was actually truly passionate, real love. Um, but it was just also tortured and they fought a lot. And as, as their relationship progressed, it became kind of toxic. Third film I want to mention to you came out in 1967. And that is who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in which Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor star in together. She, not him wins the Academy award for best performance uh, wins the Oscar. That movie. I've not seen it. I'm going to watch it as a result of reading your book. It seems absolutely fascinating. Uh, was that the crowning triumph of her acting career to play this dour beat down? I mean, she looks like Mrs. Doubtfire in the damn film. She doesn't look like Elizabeth Taylor to, do, to kind of do that. You know, and it's interesting because there's a lot of female actresses and I'm getting a little bit out of my lane who, who go, who, who are beautiful, go ugly and then win an Oscar. Uh, Charlize Theron would be the first one I could think of, uh, but there have been others. Uh, what did yeah. what did she think of this film and her performance? This is the, her crowning achievement as far as acting goes. Virginia Woolf was, you know, she helped. She read the script. She helped pick. Um, immediately, she knew she had to do it. She helped pick Mike Mike Nichols, who had never directed a movie before. The whole thing is shot in black and white, and it's like the most uncomfortable thing to watch because it's just these people fighting with each other, and it's just brutal. But it's very honest, and she ages herself by more than a decade. She gains weight. Um, and I think for her, it was this big challenge and nobody thought she could do it. And my, and there's this great letter that I found between Mike Nichols and the, one of the producers of the film. And they say, you know, Richard is going to walk away with this. He's doing such a brilliant job. And, and that's what I love is that. And then they, they say, um, Mike says, you know, I'm worried about Elizabeth as Martha. I, I don't know how it's going. And, I mean, she did win the Oscar and Richard didn't. And Richard was competitive. I think there was it was the alcohol, but it was also the competition between them. He was he wouldn't go to the Oscars. So she didn't go to the Oscars to get her Oscar that year. Like Burt Reynolds and Sally Field. 
Yeah, it kind of pisses me off. Because <laughs> you should be. Yeah, it's like he should be. You know that if he had won and she didn't, he she would have supported him. Um, so over and over again, she's there for him and he's not always there for her. So I came away thinking that she loved him more than she loved. He loved her or more than he was capable of loving anyone, really. She was glamorous. She was beautiful at a time when Hollywood glamour was silly. I think you could say it was at its apogee in, in that time period. Uh, you mentioned in one of your paragraphs in your book, and we're talking to Kate Anderson Brower about her new biography of Elizabeth Taylor. And I'll put a link on the podcast description so that you can buy it off Amazon or wherever you choose. It is an absolutely wonderful book. Made me think of my mother the entire time because I know she would have loved to have read it. Sophia Loren. You describe her as a Elizabeth thought her as of a rival. Did she have other rivals? Because when Elizabeth's basically at her peak, this young lady named Marilyn Monroe was basically at her peak. And did you get the sense you talked about competition a few minutes ago that there was competition or at least Elizabeth felt certain women were in her league or at least could be looked at the same way that she was. Sophia Loren being obviously one of the most beautiful women of the in the world, in the history of the world. <laughs> she definitely thought that Sophia and Richard Burton were sleeping together. Sophia was married to Carlo Ponti. You know, we, I don't know. <clears throat> I know I was told that Richard and Raquel Welch had a fling. I, it, it seems as though Richard and, and Sophia Loren, it wouldn't be out of the question if they, they did because they were shooting a film together and Elizabeth would talk about how they would speak in Italian around her and it drove her nuts because she couldn't speak <laughs> Italian. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that Sophia Loren is the closest thing to a rival that Elizabeth had because I think Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth felt sorry for her. She saw that Marilyn had, didn't have the the support structure that Elizabeth had and didn't have the kind of the grounded feeling about herself that Elizabeth had. I mean, Elizabeth knew she was beautiful, knew she was smart. Marilyn didn't have um, a father when she was growing up who was there for her, didn't have a strong mother in her life. I mean, she was kind of thrown to the wolves. Elizabeth never had the casting couch experience because she was already famous by the time she was 12, she had her mother there all the time. I never heard a story about her. And I think she would have talked about it, you know, have a, a producer or a director kind of make it unwanted advances. That was not, she would just like punch you if you did, you know, <laughs> she was, she knew that nobody would do that because she was already at that point. And Marilyn was kind of working her way up to it. So she she said in this unpublished interview that I, I found in the archives, you know, that she helped she helped Marilyn offered to walk out of the set of Cleopatra because Marilyn was being mistreated. And Marilyn said, no, you don't have to do that. Um, and she just felt sorry for her that she felt that it. And then Arthur Miller wrote a play about Marilyn. And there was talk of Elizabeth starring in the play as Marilyn after the fall, where it's really just negative wow. kind of caricature. And Elizabeth was so pissed off because she's like, I would never do something like that to dishonor her. Marilyn Monroe's, you know, the legend around this woman. You have a wonderful anecdote. It's not really a story. It's an anecdote about the two most famous Elizabeths in the world and how Queen Elizabeth II came to the aid of the Queen Elizabeth of Hollywood. 
tell that story because I think it's so funny. I mean, so John Warner has met Elizabeth escorting her to the British Embassy, 1976, bicentennial. There was a big party in D.C. And Elizabeth was, you know, someone needed to be there to keep her kind of to be her date and um, also to keep her kind of in check because she was, you know, you never knew with Elizabeth what she was going to do. And she was at this party and she tore the hem of her dress and she was yelling, you know, my gosh. And Queen Elizabeth comes over to her and says, Elizabeth, darling, we'll get this fixed for you. You know, don't worry about it. And just the thought of this, this hubbub going on at the British embassy and John Warner just sitting there like, oh my gosh, trying to control Elizabeth Taylor, which you never could do. And the Queen of England comes over and makes things better. Yeah. One of my ladies in waiting will take care of that. Yeah, exactly. We have a few minutes left on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh, Her time in Washington, D.C., when she was married to Republican Senator John Warner. Is it fair at all to characterize those as lost years? Um, No, I I don't think it's uh, I think that's unfair because she learned a lot here. I mean, she learned how the wheels of the levers of power work and how to get uh, legislation passed and the whole kind of relationship building and manipulation and all of that. I think she learned in Hollywood, but those years married to John Warner, although she hated it here and she was never meant to be a supporting actor, you know, and John Warner would just, you know, keep her at home in their Georgetown mansion or in their Virginia farm. And she had nothing to do. That was not going to work for the biggest celebrity of the 20th century. And I don't know what he was thinking about that, but, um, so she got, you know, depressed and she ate a lot. She drank a lot. And but I think it was a formative time for her because it led to her AIDS activism. And it's interesting because during this time, especially in the 80s, early, you know, from 81 to 89, her friends are in the White House. Yeah, I mean, the Reagans, she had been, you know, in Hollywood at the same time. She was you know, not good friends with them, but certainly friendly. And she used that relationship to get what she wanted. And, you know, I think it was also interesting that she's married to a Republican from Virginia. So she wasn't seen as she was very liberal, mm-hmm. but she could kind of um, kind of play both sides. And I think she did that really smartly. It's funny. It was, I think it, there's a story in your book where she's talking to Ronald Reagan about it and she's calling him Mr. President, Mr. President. And finally, she just snaps and goes, Ronnie. I just thought that was so funny. (laughs) Yeah, she just, and you know, that's what she did. She went to the Oval Office and flirted with him to get him to finally come to the Potomac dinner. You know, the first cases of AIDS were in like 81. He didn't talk about it at length until 87. And that is because she kept hammering them. You know, she was a co-founder of AMFAR. She was raised over $100 million for AIDS research. And she was so angry that they weren't talking about it because it was taking so many lives. And she just, yeah, she used her personal charm to get him to come to this big dinner. One thing that I, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't read in your book, which is not that big a deal, but I thought it was funny only because it was such a such an 80s reference, and that is her love of General Hospital, the soap opera, and how she appeared on it when, you know, we hadn't seen her in forever. Uh, did she talk much about that? I mean, that, that seems to me like I'd love to know how that came about. 
Yeah, I didn't put that in the book. I mean, she definitely, when I talked to Demi Moore, she was talking about how cool it was that Elizabeth did that because Demi Moore was also in soap operas and it made her feel validated that here this huge star would do it. Um, but she loved, yeah, she loved um, watching. It was her guilty pleasure watching <laughs> General Hospital and she got the chance to do it. She didn't really do a lot of acting you know, in the 80s. I mean, her last film was The Flintstones, which is kind of an unfortunate last film in the 90s. <laughs> she did These Old Broads, which was a TV mo- movie that with Debbie Reynolds that um, Carrie Fisher wrote. I think she kind of pivoted very wisely. And I think she knew how ageist and sexist Hollywood is that she was going to have to do something else. And I'm not saying that she did the AIDS activism as a way to keep herself entertained, but I think she saw something she cared about and she she used all of her time um, with that. And then also as an entrepreneur, I mean, White Diamond's passion, one of the first giant actually the most successful celebrity perfume at the time um, and still actually selling, you know, it's kind of incredible. And came after, I think, didn't, did Sophia Loren do it first? No, Jaja Gabor had a perfume mm-hmm. um, and nothing, but nothing did anywhere near as well as passion and white diamonds. I mean, that's huge. And she wanted to do a makeup and mm-hmm. kind of spin it out into all different things. But even Elizabeth Taylor couldn't, convince them to do it. She wanted to do eye, eye makeup. You said the magic word diamonds. You have almost a whole chapter or maybe it's a whole chapter about her jewelry collection. Tell the leaders and legends podcast audience just how amazing and, and lucrative it was some of the pictures in your book. They just, I mean, we've all seen the most of us are not all who knows. A lot of us have seen the crown jewels in the tower of London and you're just gawking. And it seemed like she needed her own tower to hold her jewels. <laughs> I mean, it was the largest private jewelry collection in the world. Um, you know, matched only by queen Elizabeth and other Royal families. Um, it sold for more than $150 million at Christie's, this combination of, you know, the Krupp diamond, which was a 33 carat diamond that Richard gave her, um, the Peregrina pearl, one of the largest pearls and most pure pearls in the world. I mean, just incredible um, history behind each piece. And it's really cool because each each piece she kept in its original box and she labeled it according to the husband who had given it to her. <laughs> And she treasured these pieces. I mean, it was more, and she had fun with them. If she was wearing the crop, which was her signature piece, and someone wanted to try it on, she would just take it off and let let you try it on for fun. She enjoyed the jewelry. It wasn't snobby, which I also really love about her. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Kate, you've already done this once. So I came up with five new questions. And these are the questions that people like Mitch Daniels and other people get uh, asked when they're come on twice. Are you ready? Oh, gosh. They're just as harmless as the first ones, which, of course, I know you don't remember. All right. What was your first car? I honestly can't. uh, I think like a Taurus or something. I I don't have hugely warm memories about it. It was just like an old Christopher Anderson bought you a Taurus. (laughs) It was not a great it was not a great car. (laughs) 
but it worked. <laughs> All those pictures of celebrities on his wall and you got a Taurus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you could witness any sporting event in history, be there person and watch it, which one would you choose? Gosh, I just, uh, um, maybe, oh gosh, let me think. This is, this is a tricky one. I would think I've never seen, um, I've never been to the U S open. So maybe like Serena Williams last match would have been fun to go to, but I mean, uh, yeah, I'll just go with that. What is your choice for the funniest movie of all time? <laughs> These are really hard. These are really now hard. Now you know how those of us on the other side of the microphone feel when we, you know, we're interviewed by folks like you. Oh my gosh, this is so tricky. I I might I might have to pass on that one because I don't know. I mean, I'm watching a lot of kids' movies like <laughs> elf and stuff you know so i can't think of a really great funny movie off the top of my head i will say that the i've asked this question about five times <laughs> and i have received the same answer all five times Which national lampoon's animal house what really yeah that... mitch daniels chose my cousin Vinny as his number two which i thought was really <laughs> if you could solve any historical mystery Prove what's true or not true. Which <laughs> mystery would you choose? I don't know. My gosh. Um, I mean, how the Egyptians built the pyramids, I guess. I don't know. That's perfect. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> if you could go back and it doesn't have to go back in time. Let's, let me phrase it a different way. Including living people. If you could box anyone's ears in history, whom would you choose? Box anyone's ears? Yeah, slap them. Box oh, their ears. God. Oh, I mean, uh, this is also, these are very hard questions. I mean, I, I guess I'll go with like, so you mean someone you really hate? Yeah, and you could just slap them for all the things that you know that they've done. I'll oh. tell you that all the Tudor Stewart historians all choose Henry VIII. I was going to say, I just saw Six, the musical, and I, he, he is a jerk. Um, I mean, I guess Hitler, right? If you're <laughs> Hitler or Stalin, I, you know, go with them. <laughs> one, more, one more question, though. If you, I love to ask this question of biographers uh, who, who are chronicling someone who's not around. If you could ask Elizabeth Taylor one question, what would you have asked her? Um, uh, I, I am curious why she didn't go to Montgomery Cliff's funeral. And I would ask her that question because I would, you know, the, the larger picture would have been like, what's your biggest regret? <clears throat> but I don't think she had a lot of regrets and I don't think she was that introspective, but I never understood why she didn't go to his funeral. It's strange to me because they were so close. That comes through in your book, how close they were. You have been listening to leaders and legends, a podcast presented by veteran strategies and Indiana based public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central Indiana, Garmon construction leaders and legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, 
the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today has been Kate Anderson Brower. She is the author of Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. It's an absolutely wonderful book, but if you don't take my word for it, how about Magic Johnson's? He calls her book, Brower's book took me back to the early days when Elizabeth fought so hard against the stigma surrounding people with HIV and AIDS. She lived by the credo, to whom much is giving, much is required. Her true nature is revealed here in these pages. It's a wonderful tribute about a wonderful tribute. Kate, thank you very much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you so much. It was fun chatting with you, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.